Hello and welcome to the Fire Science Show, episode 49. Great to have you here again. Over the time, I have noticed that there are some subjects in the podcast that generate above the usual uh, interest in my audience. And among these topics, there's definitely battery fires. I think lithium-ion battery is something that touches all of us as engineers because it's something new and it's something that everyone expects us to handle in a way, even if in your scientific or engineering career, you don't necessarily touch the topic. Eventually, you will be asked about the questions of burning electrical vehicles or is energy storage at your house safe or not? And I think we should be ready to answer these questions, hopefully based on science and evidence. And this is what I'm trying to to get you in the podcast and also get for myself in the podcast by inviting world-class experts. We, We had Roland Bishop from RISE, who discussed electric vehicles. We had DK Izakoye, who discussed battery systems. And today, another great scientist, this time a, a young talent from King's College, Dr. Francesco Restuccia, who also happens uh, to be my good friend and whom I admire a lot because his scientific scrutiny and the way how he performs research is on another level. All the effort he puts into quantifying uncertainties, understanding the first principles in experiments he's doing, the way how he designs. Ah, this is so good. And you will hear that in the podcast that he's really good and he knows what he's talking about, even though every second sentence he claims he's not an expert. He certainly is. And with Francesco, we go deep inside the cell, the battery, to understand what makes battery dangerous, why batteries burn, what events lead to a cascading failure of battery and little more about if self-heating can be an issue in batteries. And that's very interesting. Francesco is a scientist who've made a career out of investigating self-heating. And I find it really great that he applied all this knowledge he gained on self-heating of various materials to batteries now. And that, that looks very, very promising. So it's a tough episode, but I think if we want to be prepared to, to deal with batteries, to talk about batteries, to provide safety to facilities that deal with batteries. We need to understand what happens inside the battery. And this episode is all about it. I hope you will enjoy it. And one more question to ask if you do enjoy and if you'd like the podcast, maybe there's a chance you could leave a five-star review in your podcast app. That would help me a lot with my search engine optimization. The algorithms love five stars. So (laughs) if possible, and if you can just pause for a second, jump into the review part of your podcast app and and leave something nicer, I would be very grateful for that. And once you're done with that, please press play and enjoy the episode. Let's go. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wiengzinski, and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. I'm today here with Dr. Francesco Restuccia of King's College in London. Hey, Francesco. Hi, Wojciech. Thank you for having me. Welcome, welcome, man. Happy to have you here. And another take on batteries today. The previous episodes about batteries were really well received. So I assume uh, the audience in the 
podcast is is very interested in this technology and who's not uh, in the world of fire were being scared about the dangers of lithium-ion batteries every every day. And last week I had uh, Mike Spearpoint on the show, and uh, he also brought numerous things to consider, not to worry about, but to consider when doing a car park uh, with these electric vehicles. Actually, my, Mike said that the first vehicles were electric. That 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 killed <laughs> me. That's first car parks were meant for electric cars. Huh? Now to think about that, we have run a full circle. But Francesco, I didn't ask you to talk about electric cars. We can discuss the vehicles on some other day. I want some hardcore chemistry, man. <laughs> I want to finally know what the hell sits in the battery that uh, makes it so scary to everyone around. And I've learned that I should not poke one with a nail to see what's inside. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate, so, yes. Yeah, yeah. The active material inside might not like it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, please tell me what kind of devil's technology lies inside the lithium-ion uh, cell. And uh, yeah, just so let's start with the basic, like, how is a goddamn battery built? I know it from outside. So I'm not a chemist, so uh, any chemist might uh, be horrified ah. at my explanation because I will simplify it. Um, <laughs> but effectively, you have lithium-ion batteries, um, and they're named after the active material that's inside. So for example, when you read lithium cobalt oxide and you read LiCO2 mm -hmm. or LCO, you know that just means that the active material is lithium cobalt. So mm -hmm. the material that the cathode is made of is lithium cobalt. Or the other popular one is uh, LMO, so lithium manganese oxide. Um, and again, it just means that the active material, so the cathode, is made up of lithium manganese in you know layers. So they have mm -hmm. an oxide layer. And the third common one is NMC. So the three that you usually read most about, since you mentioned vehicles, is NMC, which is basically a cathode combination of nickel manganese cobalt. And so they're usually used for power cells, so that's why they're used a lot in okay. electric vehicles. Because, for example, when you read the 18650, so most research papers these days I read that try to do a sample cell, start with the 18650 cell, and that's just a cell that can deliver, I don't know, about two to 3,000 milliampere hours, so four to five amps. Um, I, I, I have a, a flashlight with just one cell, and it, and it lights for 12 hours, so... For me, that's uh, 12 hours of continuous light capacity in such a cell. Uh, yeah, and, and then they can charge. So they have this specific energy, right? It could be, for example, NMC is between 150 to 200 watt hour per kilo. So quite high energy dense, watt right? In, it's, uh, it's, it's very, very big. Um, or mm -hmm. the lithium uh, manganese oxide one, which is less powerful one, right? Is 100 still, right? It's 100 watt hours per kilogram. So these have quite a lot of energy that can be stored into them. Okay, but that, that's the cathode. What's what's else in there? So you have the anode and the electrolyte. And in fact, that's where the fire comes in. So these batteries are made up of an anode, a cathode, and an electrolyte substance inside. And the electrolyte substance varies. And in fact, it's usually quite hard to find out what the electrolyte is when writing papers. Uh, again, I am not a chemist, so when I started looking into this, I was a bit confused at what the electrolyte was. So I asked a chemist, I asked a chemical engineer, what is the electrolyte? And they said, it's full of additives. It's really complicated. It varies battery from battery. Um, oh. And But you always know what the cathode is because that's what the battery is named after. So, And that's uh -huh. what really is what provides the that's the energy density component. So, right? so let's, let's agree on calling uh, electrolyte the battery juice. 
Exactly, yes. So you have the juice, you have the anode, and you have the cathode. And in a, for a fire problems, you know, why are we interested in these materials? So these are the materials within a battery. Um, when you cycle a battery, so you connect it up, you make it active, then electrodes flow, right? So you have your electrical cycle. And part of the energy that's released is your electrical energy. And part of it is what's known as dual heating, right? So it's just the electrical, the cell impedance. Your cell yeah. has some resistance and it releases some heat in dual heating. One, 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 one second, one step back. Uh, yes. But the way how it is built, I, w- I was actually quite uh, confused when I watched the video of batteries being produced. But Because when I was a young kid, I had a passion for chemistry and blowing stif- stuff up and, and yeah. actually setting things on fire which has not changed significantly. <laughs> I was about to say, now you'd basically just do that for a living. Yeah, I, I made it into living, so, so actually that's quite cool. Um, and I don't go to jail for that. that that's another benefit. But I, I've uh, played with batteries. Uh, by playing, I mean I've disassembled them and they there was like a graphite core, uh, there was a metal uh, encasing and there was a black, oddly smelling substance in it. Yeah. And I, when I then saw 30 years fast forward, uh, how battery is made. They were like uh, sheets of materials spinned into a cylinder. So it's like a continuous sandwich that's just rolled. Uh, yeah, so so they're all, so, so for the cylindrical batteries, you're yeah. effectively, you start with the powder, right? So you start yeah. with some material. Um, you then make really, really, really thin sheets and then you roll them up into jelly rolls. So mm-hmm. you roll them up into really, really, all these really thin sheets into a drill. Then you compress it into a can, right, of metal mm-hmm. so that it's protected. And then you basically put a lid on the top, which has the yeah. plus bit yeah. so that you can connect a wire to it. And yeah. on the bottom, you put an anode, right? So you put the cap on the anode. The only when I saw this, uh, how it is made, and only when I finally understood what is inside, because I, I had this image in my head from the childhood that it's like a, a rod of something in the middle, a substance and the encasing that surrounds it. Only when I realized it's layers of cathodes and anodes, uh, all uh, like jelly rolled together in one uh, continuous roll, I've realized that, that why this um, mechanical failure of batteries, like why why crushing it or why nailing it immediately creates such an effect because essentially you're suddenly connecting uh, the things that should be separated. You, you create a short circuit between the cathodes and anodes and because they are so close together because you probably want to have the biggest surface reacting all the time. So, so there's like dozens or hundreds of these layers together. You yeah. pierce through them completely and so, so suddenly you've created hundreds of short circuits. and you, you just pointed out the item that I missed, obviously, in the rolling. You put a really, really thin membrane, which is called the separator, yeah. that separates the two, right? So it almost looks like a sheet of paper, right? And yeah, then yeah, you yeah. fill it with the liquid electrolyte, or the juice, as we called it, and then you uh-huh. put the cap. Yeah. yeah so, so, so then, when these short circuits, it's just all the energy that's stored in the battery, and we try to put as much energy in it because of, of obvious reasons. It's, it's just released in a split of a second, actually. And that, that that's really... Interesting, but I, I didn't want to talk that much about mechanical failure of batteries because uh, you also happen to be quite a knowledgeable person about self-heating processes, and this is something I I, I look forward. So you, you you've started mentioning um how uh, wh- why the battery produces heat. Maybe you can uh, finish that thought. Can I add? Can I add one thing just out of curiosity? Because yeah, you you actually sparked my curiosity. On you know that. 
the battery manufacturing, from what I hear from the manufacturing people, the yeah. battery manufacturing process is done a certain way because it was adapted from existing industries, right? So when we used to yeah. do Kodak films, right? We already had the industry for that, which is why the film making, uh -huh. from what I understand from the material scientist, the process was just an adaption of the one from the film industry, like Kodak okay. and so on. I and mean, that's why it was done that way. Because from an engineering point of view, I, was, I always thought there must be a more optimal way to do it. But they already had the industry. So so they just uh -huh. adapted an existing industry. But again, I'm not a material scientist. So this is from my manufacturing colleagues, because I asked why. I was like, why? from an engineering perspective, there must be a more efficient way to make this. Um, and that's also why now they're always looking at future batteries and you know there are other materials that they're trying to think about. But yeah, anyway. But there, there were also prismatic cells, uh, poached yes. cells, and I guess yes. these are done in a slightly different way, I, yes. I, I, I yes. would guess. Okay, so, so you started mentioning uh, why the battery heats up. It, it's meant to produce electricity, but it also, because it has a resistance, it's not a superconductor, it must produce uh, heat at the same time. Yeah. So first, what, what are the rates? Like uh, how much uh, battery heats and how much it gives back electricity? Oh, so the vast majority is electricity. So the extreme case is the one you pointed out earlier, which is when you start having short circuits, right? Because if mm -hmm. you start having short circuit, then you increase that resistance of your battery massively. Or if your battery starts degrading, then that impedance, internal impedance, in increases. The higher the internal impedance, the more dual heating you produce. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a fresh battery, new, with no degradation, with no short circuits, probably... I would guess 99% electricity, 1% heat, right? Mm. Or maybe 2%. Very, very small amount of it is heat. Um, but the more your battery degrades, the more internal impedance you create. And so the higher the heat. And so actually it's not a constant. It depends on your battery's aging, uh -huh. how much it produces. And it depends on the most extreme cases when you start creating a short circuit, because then that short circuit creates a peak of impedance, right? And so then a large portion of your energy stored becomes released in heat rather than electricity. And that's a time issue as well, because we do heat transfer for fire, right? So mm -hmm. heat transfer is a time-dependent process. And so if your heat is released very slowly over a long period of time, you go into my other area of expertise, self-heating. If your heat is released very, very quickly, then you have a local peak of temperature increase, mm -hmm. and then the rates, chemistry rates are exponential. And so they go up much, much faster. But but even if it's 1%, and yeah. uh, let's assume your car driving takes, I don't know, 30 kilowatts, 50 kilowatts, 100 kilowatts, if if, uh, if you enjoy your life <laughs> and quick cars, but it takes like, let's say 50 kilowatts, uh, kilowatts per hour. And even if it's just a 1%, that's 500 watts released into a metal tank. And even but more important not... in the charging, right? So, you know, we okay. always talk about okay. fast charging. If you oh, yeah. use all of your battery in two hours driving, but then you want to charge it in 10 minutes, you're doing the exact same electrical cycle backwards, so, right? Okay. So instead of the energy going one way, it's going the other, but you're still producing heat. The heat yeah. generation, the dual heating is still based on that impedance. But if you want to, that's the biggest problem they have with fast charging, right? Is if you want to charge your electric vehicle in five minutes, which is impossible at the moment, but imagine you did, the amount of heat that you would be producing is massive because the kilowatts that you're putting in are huge. And so the charging rate and the discharging rate, so you're using up of your vehicle uh, electricity, higher discharge rate means higher C number is what they call it in the battery world, would mean more heat produced per unit time. Yeah, I, I was always surprised when I saw this uh, information about quick chargers and, and people trying to connect like, I don't know, half megawatt charger into a truck. 
and I'm like, I run the fire laboratory. We do run uh, high capacity fans in, in in high temperatures. When I have to test a hundred kilowatt fan, it adds so much to my logistics because it's like huge, huge cords. It's dangerous. It's that's a lot of electricity, man. And and then you just go, yeah. And I I will just plug this half megawatt uh, socket into my car and go for a coffee. So that scares the hell out of me. But I I guess they. I hope they've worked it uh, worked it over. But again, if it's just if it's just one percent that goes into heat, that's a considerable amount of heat. And yeah. I've had this issue when designing my lab. So when I yeah. was designing my lab, I wanted to have scalability for my battery testing. So I have a nice big battery tester. But the first question I got from the health and safety team, as you know, the crazy academic who wants to put something in, is how much heat will you be generating? Because this has You've asked us to put in a current uh, limiter of 60 amps. 60 amps is very high. So how much heat are you going to be producing? So I had to do some back-of-the-envelope calculations, not with 1% heat, but you know, I, I went with 10% mm. just to maximize. But yeah, it is, it is a huge concern. Um, from a research side in a lab, I can imagine from a design side when you're building the cars or building the charging stations, just as big, right? Yeah. Because you have more people using it, you have more chance of error, you have more risk of a failure. Yeah. Okay, so before we go into the battery finally igniting, we've discussed the the heating processes due to short circuits uh, with mechanical failure. We've briefly discussed the charging and, and just energy consumption. And let's go into self-heating. I guess if I... And take a step back in between the two, yeah. I can explain the stages maybe of the heating that might help. So in a battery, you have reactions okay. happening at different temperatures and you're going to get to self-heating, um, which happy to talk about. But I guess maybe is when your battery, doesn't matter how your battery is heating up, right? Okay. Self-heating or not self-heating. When your battery reaches a certain level of temperature and it cannot dissipate the heat, mm -hmm. usually that's about 100 degrees. Uh, when you get to 100 degrees, your solid electrolyte interface, um, so that's the thin layer that is on your cathode, it starts to decompose, right? Um, and so if that starts to decompose, that causes exothermic reactions and that adds its own heat. So, you know, we say it's an active material and as an active material, as I, and when I think of chemistry, the reaction rates from a combustion side always happen, exothermic reactions always happen at different temperature ranges, right? And so in the battery, usually you first have heat being created from the solid electrolyte interface decomposing, then from the electrolyte electrode decomposition at a higher temperature, and then from the electrolyte decomposition at the higher even temperature. And so you have the in, inner materials, those active materials you're asking about, all start reacting at different temperatures. Um, okay, so cannot we just remove the one that reacts at the lowest temperature? And but you need it too. Yeah. You you need. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's what causes can we make the, a magic the battery material? to work. Can, can we magic, make a magic material that will go off at 200, not, not at 100? The SEI layer, so the, the solid electrolyte decomposition layer is just like a passivating layer that forms on the electrodes. Mm -hmm. And so as your battery operates, you're forming wow. this layer. And so you're, it's kind of covering the intercalated lithium, lithium in the negative electrode. Mm -hmm. um, and so when it starts decomposing, then the intercalated lithium is exposed, right? And so it's then exposed to the electrolyte and so it causes even more reactions. So, so, um, so basically you enter a path of no return and this yeah. additional heat generated by this exothermic reaction will heat the thing more. Yeah. 
much, up, much up more. Up to the uh, next point where another thing will start yes. contributing and another thing and another thing and you end up with this thermal runaway, I guess. This, this, yes, this is it, yes. yeah? And actually, the last material, ironically, which is maybe slightly contradictory, we name all the batteries from the active materials, yeah. right? So I said, and then, but that's usually the last material that then starts uh-huh. because that is the one at the most high temperature. So that's actually the last bit that starts creating heat at the usually um, because normally at the higher, higher temperatures, then the positive electrode can start becoming unstable and, and decompose. And do, do we... Um... Let's say uh, uh, that all the heat released in a fire of a single cell is 100%. Do we know how much each of these steps contributes to this? uh... Uh, Complicated. So it depends Uh on the state of charge of the battery. Uh Um, So it depends also how much energy is in the battery. Um, And it depends on what electrolyte is being used. So there are some papers that have looked at the different contributions. Um, And from a self-heating side, we have looked um, at the contribution in temperature rates of the different rates of increase, mm-hmm. but not the individual materials. Uh-huh. So we looked at the temperature range. Okay, so, so from than, this temperature to this, is this increase? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So at the macro level rather than at the chemistry level. At the chemistry level, it's quite a challenge. So because you start having... So the materials that react start forming other re- materials. And in fact, if your cell then overpressures, for example, you were talking about prismatic cells So if we, earlier. So if your prismatic cell burst the safety vent, and then some of these gases that are being produced inside start reacting with the oxygen outside, then that causes even more reactions. Uh And the gases that are being produced are very complicated. So there are a lot of carbohydrates, but there's also hydrochloric um, Mm -hmm. gases, uh, hydrofluoric. um, And so it can get, yeah, um, very complicated very quickly. But I guess this is fundamental to understand these macro fires of batteries because yeah. they start um, like the the ones that are from the the individual cells because obviously if the if the car park is on fire and your battery catches fire from that heat i guess the cell chemistry would not matter that uh, that much it just acts as a heat source right it's so just once a heat you have source, a heat exactly, source yeah. yes it's the same with our pool fires right if you have a pool fire once your pool fire has a size, it's the heat release rate from that size. doesn't matter if you were burning CH, uh, C7 or C8, right? It's the heat that's being released from those flames, uh, the heat release rate. Okay. Uh, but you asked me earlier about modifying the items inside. Yeah. You're not far off. I, I actually think that is one of the solutions. Is If you can change the additives in the electrolytes to add things that maybe passively act for the duration of your battery life. But then if your temperature is above a certain temperature, they act as a suppressant or mm-hmm. the heat remover or whatever it is. That could be a solution. Um, or, you know, if you can have maybe a ceramic coated separator in between, right? Then the ceramic is harder to create short circuits from, right? It is also um, harder okay, to, it adds a cost. It's harder to roll as well. <laughs> yes, exactly. It adds a cost and it adds a weight and weight is a big oh, yeah. problem. Uh but yeah, that could be one way. Um, so it's it can start from the chemistry modification. So you can change the cathode, you can change the anode, you can change the additives and the electrolytes. Or as we are not chemists, mm. neither myself nor you, we we can look at the bigger size, right? So we can look at a bigger size. What can we do with a battery management system? Or what can we do with separation, right? Uh, separation between batteries in, within a pack. Uh, what can we mm. do with detection? What can we do with different suppression methods. I think it's it's a brilliant starting point and uh, despite the like I'm I'm on the edge of understanding. I understand 
literally up to 60% of what you said. So I think, and I think I'm quite successful, but the takeaway, the takeaway is, I think is this thought that uh, the things happen at certain temperatures and uh, essentially you, you reach a threshold point, which initiates a set of uh, events that, that lead to failure. And I, I think this, uh, this is a great takeaway because it doesn't happen by, by pure magic or unicorn farts. It's chemistry that leads to that. And you've already mentioned many things that influence this thing, the, the energy capacity of the battery, the, sorry, the, the, the charging state of the battery, the processes. Is it charging? Is it discharging? The chemistry of the electrolyte, because I think this is, this is where the confidential magic is happening. If everyone is using the the same cathode materials, I guess they're playing with electrolytes to differentiate and, and patent some things to earn more coin on, on that. And finally, maybe not exactly, but you, you have a rough idea when this thing becomes dangerous. Because if you don't enter this cascading level or this cascade, this cascade of events leading to a major failure, you don't get a major failure. Yes. And we've talked very generally, right? Yeah. So it can also be, so I've talked about the system in charger, discharger in mm-hmm. use, but also passive, right? Yeah. That's where self-heating comes in when you mentioned self-heating is, you know, what's a active circuit? So I said in the charging yeah, or yeah. discharging rates, but batteries still react. You know, your battery is always reacting mm-hmm. even when it's not mm-hmm. connected, okay. right? It's still, it's still producing heat, even in open circuit conditions. Yeah. Um, my, my, okay. And, I, I, yeah. There was a, a Guillermo Broad on Twitter, uh, some instruction for a laptop, which mentioned fire in so many places. And I've responded showing a picture of my old laptop that two years ago, my battery has suddenly swollen into like three times its size. And I recall it happened literally overnight. I didn't use the laptop. So when the the device is idle, I guess there are still things happening in there. Yeah, because mass diffusion, right? You know, Uh you're always going to have some electrodes travel through. You're always going to have diffusion through your from one side to the other. So your battery will always, even when it's not connected, your internal resistance is in itself a connection, right? So you're going to have passive resistance, not just active resistance. Okay, but will it happen when the battery is discharged? Like when its uh, charge level is zero? Will it st- When charge level is zero, that's, it does, it, you don't get to that condition because that's really bad. Uh-huh. So when everything is on one end, um, you're, you're basically then have exposed... The material. So remember, I said that yeah. you're creating this SEI layer. If you've moved everything to one end, so the battery is completely at zero, you're, you will have exposed that, and it's not designed to be exposed. So, so you're telling. So in fact, I think it starts reacting even further. Uh, so, so, so you're telling me my laptop is uh, lying to me when it says charge zero. Absolutely. <sighs> yeah. There is no such. I always yeah, knew you, that. You will never allow a device to go down to zero. Okay. Um, but what, what does that mean? Uh, okay. That's cool. Uh, I have a laptop with one battery, but on the factory where they produce laptop batteries, they probably have uh, one million of them stuck together. Like, what what does this mean for storage of batteries? Like, when you produce them in in large volume quantities, you you have uh, tons of devices that, and you just said that the reactions are ongoing, whether you like it or not. So so they are produced, and often they are uh, shipped as charged batteries yeah. yeah and that's why they put a limit so you have an ideal charge rate which is i think 30 percent from the standards now uh-huh. but also colder temperatures so that's the other thing you do is to reduce this self-discharge right you lower the temperature so what do i do when i store batteries in my lab is they have to be in a fridge 
below 10 degrees, ideally 10 degrees. And then that's the optimal range for them not to to reduce the self-discharge. So self-discharge is also temperature dependent. Um, okay, about the stupid question, if I, my cell phone in winter works uh, shorter and if I expose it to minus 20, it's going to die very soon. So it loses yes. this capability of React, which also, from your perspective, yeah. makes it safer. Well, uh, so other sorry, problems arise <laughs> when you go to too low. Other problems arise. So I'm not a material scientist uh, or a chemist, but you have a sweet spot of temperatures for which the materials are designed. Mm -hmm. If you go too low in temperature, I believe you might start degrading the materials in other uh -huh. ways. But I'm not an expert uh, on this. So there is a guidance on the range you want to keep it in for the battery to be healthy. And I don't know what that lower limit is. That doesn't um, matter. But, but I always... But it exists. Yeah, that, but, that's what matters. The, the, yes, the guidance yes, exists. Yes. So, so based on experience, tests, knowledge, uh, the, the yeah. scientists have figured out the optimal charge level where the, let's yeah. say, the risk would be minimum. Okay. Yeah. Charge and temperature. Charge and temperature, charge and temperature okay. right? So I think charge, they, they ship them at 30% state of charge. And temperature, I don't know, but there is an optimal temperature, which is usually... Your battery, the optimal temperature for a battery normally is between 10 and 25 degrees. Above 25 degrees, it's not good for the battery. Below 10 degrees, might start having other issues. But for example, when I store them in the lab, it's between 6 and 10 degrees. Okay, so batteries produce heat. There's an optimal yeah. uh, temperature at which the, let, let's call it risk being lowest. Uh, maybe it's incorrect term, but more understandable by the fire audience. So uh, do are we managing this heat? That, that That's something that interests me. So if I have a bunch of batteries in my car, which I don't yeah. because I don't have an electric vehicle yet, but if in my hypothetical car, if I had it, would the battery management system be monitoring the, the heat as well? Because I know it is monitoring electricity. Good question. So your battery in an electric vehicle uh -huh. is made up of many, many cells, thousands of cells. You... For a question of cost and space, you don't monitor every single cell's temperature. Voltage you can do by line mm -hmm. because you can have a row. Yeah. And if it's in series, you have the voltage there, right? And voltage um, you probably would like to monitor to know the charge level anyway. Correct. And you usually do that by row. So every mm -hmm. six or 12 or whatever that row is. But temperature, you cannot do for each one um, just because it adds massive costs. And so temperature sometimes is monitored, but it would be monitored at probably a pack level, not at a cell level. But everything I've been telling you now is about a single cell. So imagine you have a cell that starts deteriorating um, or a cell that goes into some kind of initial failure condition Usually, in an electric vehicle, you're not monitoring that cell's temperature. And some people say that, okay, but you're monitoring the voltage, so you will see a voltage drop. But sometimes, and we've shown this in literature, including a paper I am on, we've shown that sometimes the failure happens before the voltage drop. So in fact, I have a case in one of the papers we've written that the battery was basically on fire and the voltage was still constant. And then it dropped 15 it's seconds like, later. Uh, very, but that's very brave uh, that's, battery. I assume it was Ukrainian fighting till the end. <laughs> uh, okay. And any other things you can monitor, like maybe you can measure impedance of the cells. Yeah. So impedance is another thing they do. And they measure impedance, especially when they're trying to figure out how your battery has degraded. Uh -huh. So imagine you want to have a second life of a battery. Uh -huh. So the elephant in the room for batteries, my opinion, is recycling, right? Mm -hmm. Just like we had for plastics is when your car or whatever system you're using reaches its end of life, you either recycle the battery and that has a lot of costs involved 
or you try to redeploy it in a second life in something that requires maybe less high spec, mm -hmm. right? Because your battery has degraded. So how do you then figure out how much your battery has degraded? So normally what they do is they then measure the impedance of the battery. So you can use impedance systems that measure what the new like internal impedance is so that you know how much your battery has degraded. What it doesn't tell you is what conditions it was exposed to. So it doesn't tell you if it was kept in a warehouse at 40 degrees and maybe, so it doesn't tell you what has degraded. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, battery recycling, uh, entire topic. But for me, that's the, apart from the fire safety, which I find really interesting on a global scale is what's the plan with end of life for the batteries? We have it for nuclear, right? If you have a nuclear power plant, you want to design a nuclear power plant, you are not allowed until you have presented the plan of what happens to all the spent fuel, what happens to the land, what happens to everything that goes with that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, even if you want to put a new oil rig out into the sea, you have to have an end-of-life plan for that mm. platform and what happens. But with batteries, there's not much. People who are listening to the podcast are, are open-minded fire engineers who want to understand what the future brings. And I, I think what you mentioned now, if we think we have an issue with electric vehicles or, or lithium-ion batteries today, which I don't think is that big issue, but let's say the the public would say it's a big issue today. Like when you bring to the question the uh, out-of-life batteries or repurposed batteries or 30-year-old batteries, that's going to be an interesting uh, issue we are going to have. And we better start looking for solutions how to manage this. Uh, should we incrementally increase the fire safety regulations for, for, for the batteries if even though we don't have really good regulations at the moment. But it seems that uh, we're struggling uh, with something that, that's not even a problem yet. Yeah? Yes, and it, I think it's going to become a problem in a couple of years, right? Once batteries are scaling up and scaling up and we're using more and more higher, high energy density batteries, once people, uh, and there are companies that have started doing second life of batteries, you know, what are the regulations around that from a safety side? If I'm a fire scientist and I care about when the system will fail and potentially cause a fire, and I have no clue of what's changed inside, I just have this battery pack mm -hmm. um, and I've been told the impedance has changed and that's it. I have no clue what I've exposed it to. The hysteresis, the history, the hysteresis of it, what cycling it's been exposed to, what charging it's been exposed to, you know, that degrades the battery. So it's, from a safety side, I find it concerning. <laughs> and, and, um, and how the degraded battery is more dangerous because of this increased impedance, this increased uh, yeah, self -heat? potential short circuits. Uh -huh. Yeah, potential short circuits. Right. So, for for example, self heating. Right. So, I sorry, I'm gonna yeah, go on, go step you, into self heating. Go, go, go so, into self heating. Uh, yeah. So, Schwanze and Zenwin, who and uh, Guillermo Rain and I have worked on self heating at Imperial. Yep. Um, and a lot of what I'm going to say is the merit of Zenwen and Schwanz's work and their PhDs. And, you know, they studied a lot on what happens when you have exothermal, these exothermal chemical reactions are always happening, right? So they increase your temperature. So I care about self-heating ignition. I've done self-heating ignition for non-batteries, for, you know, other reactive media in my PhD. And the problem is very easily posed to me is, well, the behavior is the same. So what happens if in an open circuit cell, Instead of abusing it, instead of adding an internal short circuit, I just consider the battery itself and the heating that it's caused. If the, if the heat cannot be dissipated and the heat starts building up, then 
I might reach a critical temperature for which self-heating ignition can happen and thermal runaway okay. can happen, right? So I can reach a condition where these exothermic chemical reactions are causing enough heat to be produced that the environment around it is not providing enough cooling. Mm -hmm. And so eventually the temperature will go up. And obviously, if that's a single cell, you do the calculations and Schwanze has done experimentally and you, know, you get a ridiculous high temperature that you will not reach in a warehouse. But if you increase the size, so with self-heating theory, if you go back to Semenov or if you go back to the work in the 80s or even some of my work in my PhD, you, you see that for most reactive media, if you increase the size, the temperature threshold for which you will reach a critical temperature that will eventually reach the thermal runaway will decrease. And so by how much it decreases, it changes. And so what they did in their PhD was they looked at this phenomenon for batteries. So they said, okay, if I have a stack of batteries and those batteries are all heating up, the center core battery might be heating up more, right? Because it's not releasing that heat to the environment. It's releasing it to batteries next to it, which are also causing heat, mm -hmm. right? And eventually you might reach the condition where you have temperatures that cause ignition, temperatures that you can reach in warehouses. The, yeah. the state of batteries is idle. They, they are not being charged. Yeah, they're open circuit. Mm -hmm. So imagine you have a warehouse, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Zenwen did this calculation in his PhD, which was that he took the size of a warehouse mm -hmm. and he said, okay, imagine I'm packaging batteries in this warehouse and it's all batteries. At what size will I need of number of batteries for them to ignite at room temperature in the warehouse. And he found the number to be very, very high, you know, racks and racks of them. But that's if there is no insulation, there is no packaging. And so he said, okay, now what happens if I start adding packaging, right? So packaging causes insulation, mm -hmm. in fact. So it lets you retain the heat. And he saw that that temperature started dropping massively. Um, and one of his papers found effectively that depending on what insulation you have between the batteries, it actually massively lowers the temperature for which self-heating ignition happens. Um, and Schwanze then did this experimentally. So he measured self-heating ignition for a stack of batteries. Um, and he saw that as you increase the stack size, the temperature for which they reached ignition reduced. And that is was passive self-heating that you would encounter in when you s store the batteries. Uh, yes. Where they're like, you've said that there was a, a certain charging uh, point uh, at which they should be stored. So did, did you guys try like different charging points? To, yes, to, to... yeah, absolutely. Very good question. So so that was one of our first questions. Okay, we did everything at a single star charging point initially. So in Schwanz's first experiments that he did back in China, he had state of charge of 30%. So he had the low one that mm -hmm. you use for transport. But then he said, okay, but what happens if I increase it, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens if I go to higher state of charge? And in fact, he found that you have more electrical energy stored inside, but he also found that your temperature threshold for self-heating ignition um, massively reduces. And so the more state of charge, the lower temperature it will, the lower critical temperature for which ignition is triggered. Uh, by, is by ignition, you mean the beginning of this cascading processes or... Something specific. Yes. So the beginning. So basically, where the process becomes unstoppable, right? Uh -huh. And at some point, yeah. What what is that trigger temperature? So if I go back to something that we've looked at in fire from the 1980s, is coal, right? So this was done a lot for coal fires. Is you know what is that 
temperature for storage. So coal has the same problem, right? Coal is a reactive material. It oxidizes with oxygen. Mm. So if there's oxygen in the room, your coal is going to be producing its own heat. Mm. doesn't matter that you're not burning it. It's going to be producing heat. And so the mines that use coal or power plants that use coal always had that policy of first in, first out, right? The coal that gets into storage first is the first one that's going to be used. You don't leave it in storage for a long time. You don't start using the one that comes later, uh, not because of, you know, aging of coal and, you know, like whiskey or mm-hmm. the age, the better. Uh, it's the opposite. It's, you know, the more aging it has, the more heat it's mm-hmm. had a chance to produce. And so for coal, they found obviously that the bigger the storage pile, the lower the temperature for which you would have that trigger. And so that's what we were looking at from a battery side is can we find a similar behavior to what we have seen in many, many fuels over the history in fire science and which maybe the battery community was not really used to thinking about. Um, and okay, and when you did this uh, experiments, I, I know there is a fancy technique that you have ruined for everyone else. That that's accelerated rate calorimetry. Yeah. So so that was uh, the last chapter of Schwanzehe's PhD thesis with yeah. Pierre Morin at Imperial. Um, you know, the way we get kinetics mm. that we use for a lot of our stuff is using accelerating rate calorimetry, and we often investigate thermal runaway parameters. So those, you know, parameters that bring you to runaway by assuming adiabatic conditions. Mm-hmm. So you assume no that transfer. your conditions, exactly. And you put it into this machine that's called accelerating rate calorimetry and out pop the kinetics effectively. That's a really simple way of putting it. But what Schwanze and Guillermo and I and uh, a couple of others thought was, well, we do heat transfer. Adiabatic seems surprising when you have a system that has its own temperature mm-hmm. generation right? Um, and it's not microscopic, right? A battery is not a, you know, millimeter let, let, size. Let us assume that um, battery is a point in space. <laughs> and so, exactly. So, so Schwanze then did measurements um, to figure out if you do not ignore the heat transfer. So, basically, what you're assuming is that you're ignoring internal heat transfer, mm-hmm. right? When you use accelerating mm-hmm. rate calorimetry. And he said, well, what happens? Can we ignore internal heat transfer? So, within the cell, and external heat transfer at the cell surface. Because in an accelerator calorimetry, you have a constant temperature wall. And he found that actually, um, for, I think he used, I'm on the paper, so I'd be, I need to be careful here with not getting things wrong. Um, so he used lithium cobalt batteries, lithium cobalt oxide. So for his lithium cobalt oxide prismatic cell, he found that actually for temperatures that are much lower than thermal runaway, mm-hmm. so, you know, very low temperature, then the temperature variation was between 1, 1. 1.5 degrees. So between 0 and 1.5 and degrees. So relatively small, right? The the heat uh, that you're missing, the negligence that you're getting from the heat transfer effects. But I already found that when thermal runaway does occur, so when you reach those higher temperatures, then the temperature that you've missed, the change mm-hmm. that you've missed by ignoring the heat transfer effect can go from 10 degrees to 130 degrees. And so he found that actually... If you ignore heat transfer, external heat transfer effects, then you are underestimating the heat of reaction of the cell by about 12% for the cell that he was using. That's a lot. You know, if the heat of reaction underestimated by 12% means that your kinetics, the estimated kinetics, will have a bigger error. And that error will grow as the number of cells grows, right? So I said that the t- temperature for self-heating will decrease as 
you increase the size. So imagine you have more and more cells, then that error will compound. And, um, and did they go uh, back to the warehouse calculations knowing that? <laughs> so so the paper the paper came out last week, in fact. So it's a very new paper from his thesis. And basically our conclusion was that um, if you ignore heat transfer effects, then the thermal runaway parameters that you're quantifying using this technique will have errors that can propagate in your battery safety design. And so if you go back to the warehouse, <laughs> you know, make sure that if you're using that data for your calculation, you are aware of the errors so that you can use it in your prediction. Because, I mean, you do way more CFD than I do, Wojcik, and yeah. you know that it's fine. As long as you know what the error is, you can account for it and you can do error propagation. But if you don't know what it is and you don't have an error propagation, then you're going to have a lot of issues with design. Uh, I, I had a very nice talk about about life as an engineer with Mike Spearpoint. And there was this consistent level of crudeness being mentioned that when you do um, very fine simulations and you have a underpinning assumption that has a major error, no matter how fancy your technique was, this uh, initial error will propagate to whatever you do and uh, will increase the uncertainty of whatever you've done by a lot. And if here... The first thing you would assume that the reaction rate is this and you've missed it by 12%. And that's the underpinning point of every single analysis you do for, for the next of your research. That's a huge miss and not, uh, not the biggest one in the fire industry, but still. But I learned this with Guillermo. So I did my PhD with Guillermo yeah. Rain. And when I started doing, so I started looking at self-feeding from a modeling side and I realized that I couldn't find the data I wanted in the literature because I wanted the errors. I wanted to know what the uncertainty was and I couldn't find the uncertainty. I said, well, if I model, I, need, I don't know, how, I don't mind how big the uncertainty is. I need to know what it is. Yeah. So then I ended up doing experiments to get said data. And then I put the errors. And Guillermo and I were having discussions in my first paper in my PhD because my error bars were quite large. And so then when I upscaled to real life scenarios, I was having these really big error bars. And in fact, if you look even now with Schwanz and Zenwen in our battery papers, when we upscale, mm -hmm. our error bars are quite big. And I went back to Guillermo and we were looking at my figures and I was like, I'm really worried. And Guillermo said, but why? You know, if that's the uncertainty that we're getting, that's the important thing. And that's when you then use the data, you need to know what the uncertainty was. So we sent the paper for review. I got demolished by one of the mm -hmm. reviewers. I got a little bit demoralized. We resubmitted the paper to Combustion and Flame, in fact. Uh, got great reviews back. No problem with the errors. Uh, in fact, you know, it's very good that you specified all the data. And so for me, it was actually... At the beginning, it was a bit worrying, but in fact, I learned and I've kept this throughout my career. And now that I'm an academic and I have my own PhD students, mm. I am very careful always with, um, or even with my postdoc on error uncertainty analysis. You know, I don't mind if the error is big, but it needs to be accurate so that if you then use it for modeling, you have as accurate as you can get data. Um, it's something that my my mentor, Professor Czerneski, said, uh, do you want to be... Uh roughly correct or precisely wrong and uh, <laughs> like roughly correct is sometimes that's all you can get and to understand the, the limitations of, of your errors means you can I mean the, the data does not need to be super high fidelity to be useful models do not have to replicate reality in 100% to be useful these are tools uh, for engineers and I think here another lesson comes for the general fire safety engineering audience who may not be that big fans of cathodes and anodes. But here we are talking about quite difficult 
engineering topic where so many fields of science interlap. And then again, if if these batteries burn down, it's us fire engineers who's going to be blamed that we didn't solve this issue. And methodologically going through it, understanding the limitations, understanding the impact of these small factors gives you, uh, in the end, a holistic view on on a system, in this case, on a battery cell, that gives you space to work with. It's not that we're going to magically solve the problems of batteries, if one exists, actually. But we need to learn how to live with them and how to manage them in, in a way that is acceptable. And I think this is an achievable goal. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And in fact, you know, I, if I go back even to Schwanz's first experiments, right? He, one single cell in self-heating requires, you know, a, a room temperature, the cell at low 30% state of charge. So, you know, really safe, the one for travel, a single cell, super healthy, no issues, requires something like 150 degrees or 160 degrees room temperature, which is never going to be achievable. But if then two cells requires 150, four cells require 145, you know, and then you scale and you get down, figuring out that from what you can gather experimentally or numerically, um, if you can figure out what the errors that you are compounding are, for example, when we do experiments, if I am doing a battery experiment and I have a pack, I'm ignoring the material that's inside the box, I'm ignoring the separation, I'm ignoring a lot of things, right? But it should be good enough that we can then use it. If we try to do everything perfect, I mean, look at CFD. If we were to do a direct numerical simulation of Navier-Stokes for a box that's bigger than a meter cube, <laughs> we'd be luck. spending 150 years waiting for the solution. Yeah. And so often, you know, we do combustion, right? So mm -hmm. in combustion, we need to optimize our parameters. So if I'm looking at turbulence um, and I care about the really precise chemistry and chemical kinetics, then I will set up my simulation one way and I will make some assumptions. If I care about a really fast solution, but that gives me a temperature range, for which my behavior will be in, and I can afford to have a 50 degree error, then I will run it with much less chemistry, detailed chemistry. I will run it with fixed chemistry parameters and get my quick solution out. And so as an engineer, I mean, we have to wear two hats, right? So I'm a scientist, so I mm -hmm. want things to be accurate and I want things to be precise. But as an engineer, I need it to be useful, exactly. right? And so you need to find a balance in between the two. And having to wear both hats is... The fun part of our research, I guess, is, but yeah, we need to remember that it has to be useful at some point. Yeah, and the third hat of managing uh, laboratory and health and safety, but that's not the topic for the podcast. And teaching and teaching, <laughs> and teaching hats teaching and hats. admin hats, but oh, yeah. let's ignore those for now. <laughs> I also have a podcast hat. It's great if you want to fit. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, thank you, um, Fr Francesco. Thank you so much. Uh, I think this is a difficult topic, but... The more you know your enemy, the less you're fearful of it. And I really want my my audience, my people to understand what is the issue we are dealing with. It's in a way a mystical, magical technology. This The fact you can capture a lightning inside of a small metallic pouch and, and use it to power your electric cigarette. Uh, someone once said, I, I wanted to, to charge my book, uh, but my wife was charging her cigarette. The future is stupid. <laughs> That's, it's a thing that enables us and if you look at the world it's it's actually one of the technologies that uh, that is necessary to change the, the the planet the fossil fuel everything to a more sustainable 
future. And uh, fire engineers... I like Guillermo's approach yeah? to this. So I'm going to steal Guillermo Reyn's approach to this, which he uses in other fields. Should, yes. <laughs> he says, you need to think about, when you think of a fire problem, it does, I mean, technology is useful, right? But you need to think about how to prevent it how to compartmentalize it. If a fire happens, how do you compartmentalize it? How do you detect it? And how do you suppress it? And all four things are equally important because Mm -hmm. we always want to have prevention, right? We never even want to have a fire, but our job is also to figure out what happens if we do have a fire. So how do we compartmentalize it? How do we detect it so we know it's happening? And that's sort of what we were discussing earlier about voltage and temperatures. And how do you suppress it? Battery fire suppression is really, really complicated because the chemistry can get really complicated. Mm. The toxicity of some of the gases can be, there's hydrofluoric gases. I think even, even hydro- access to the cells that are reacting is, is the major yeah, obstacle yeah. at the start. Um, and so, and so it's, it's putting all of those together that's important. And so our technology is, our future technological future is always bright and it's always improving. But from a fire side, we're never going to prevent every single fire. And, and so we always need to think about the other aspects as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much uh, for sharing this uh, with us. And yeah, I, I will link to all the works that have been mentioned in the talk in the show notes. And please send me uh, if you have something to add to that, because I think you've mentioned uh, quite a lot of interesting research being done at your lab and at the Imperial College. And it is absolutely worth sharing. I, I, I'm sure some people would like to dig in more. And yeah, absolutely. We'd be very happy to. And it's not limited. I mean, I'll send you the works we have done, but there's works from the US, works from Asia. You know, battery field is really growing. So I've shared our experiences, but thankfully there's a lot of researchers around the world. Thank you so much for doing that. And uh, thanks for coming to the Fire Science Show. I hope you've enjoyed. Thank you so much. See you around, man. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Cheers. And that's it. Thank you for listening. I hope this was a five-star worthy episode. From my perspective, it was because I finally learned what makes the batteries burn. And this is an interesting lesson. In the end, I would like to bring your attention again to the elephant in the room that Francesco pointed, that is the second life of batteries. If we want a sustainable future and a circular economy, there is no way we can just let them rot on the dump wastes. And that will probably lead to catastrophic fires as well. So I don't think it's even a choice. We need to find a way how to reuse batteries. We need to find a way how to give them second life. Because of how they're manufactured, it's probably going to be difficult to disassemble them to first uh, materials and and assemble again. So we probably need to find a usage for used lithium-ion batteries. We probably need to find a way how we can benefit from them again once they're ended their life cycle in the primary device they were in, like a car or laptop or something. And I think it's going to be a huge challenge. I know the focus today is on the safety of cars, buses, car parks, energy storage at buildings, mass energy storage facilities, maybe warehouses. But trust me, in a decade or two, when there are billions of used cells that need to be refurbished or reused, a lot of us will be dealing with the the issues of how safely give batteries second life. And I think we we should look forward to that. There is no sustainable future without reuse. So we need to be a significant part of that. And through the podcast, I will try to find great guests who can talk about this second life of batteries, even though there's not that much knowledge yet. But hopefully we can start working towards solutions before the problems start arising. And uh, yeah, that that would be pretty good. And for now... (laughs) 
I think that's it for the today's episode. Thank you very much for staying till the end and for listening to the show. And if you enjoyed, there's another episode for you waiting every Wednesday. So see you there. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.